0: I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 26, 2020. Coming up, we talk with Carl Safina about his new book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace.
1: We know almost nothing about animals, but animals have a lot of intentionality. When they're studied, or if you simply observe them carefully you see obviously they're going somewhere that they have in mind to do something that they are planning to do.
0: Carl Safina is an ecologist and a best-selling author of books about the lives of animals. His latest book is Becoming Wild. We have a limited number of Safina's new book, available to listeners who pledge online at kgnu.org. The book, by the way, has beautiful photos of all the animals. We'll soon go to a conversation with Safina. Let's begin with Safina reading in his audio version of the book, which is published by Tantor Media. Here's Carl Safina.
1: We become who we are not by genes alone. Culture is also a form of inheritance. Culture stores important information not in gene pools but in minds. Pools of knowledge, skills, preferences, songs, tool use, and dialects get relayed through generations like a torch. By going deep into nature, looking at individual creatures in their free-living communities, we are going to get a very privileged glimpse behind the curtain of life on Earth. Watching as knowledge, skills, and customs flow among other species, provides us with a new understanding of what is constantly going on unseen by us, beyond humanity. It will help inform the answer to that most urgent of questions. Who are our traveling companions in the journey of this planet? Who are we here with? That's our present expedition. Ready?
0: Carl Safina, I just loved feeling like I was hanging out with these creatures that live on earth with us. You've given us such a wonderful way to take our minds off of this pandemic.
1: I'm glad you think it helps to take us off of the distraction and anxiety of the COVID epidemic. But the book was completely done and buttoned up before the word COVID was invented. And now the world has changed on us but it has not changed on most other animals and what the book is largely about is how other animals that have culture live their lives and how they acquire their culture basically what culture is is skills and behaviors and even attractions that are learned socially you learn them from those around you they're not purely instinctive you don't figure them out by trial and error You learn them from others around you. They can be retained and passed along socially. So culture for these other animals in my book is really very, very similar to what culture is in humans.
0: Carl Safina's new book, Becoming Wild, features three animals that have rich cultures. Those animals are chimpanzees, scarlet macaws, and sperm whales. The sperm whale has an enormous, square-shaped head that is largely made of fats and oils that help it communicate with others of its clan very clearly and through very long distances. The sailors call it sperm whales. Why?
1: Because the head is filled with a series of kinds of oil that reminded them of semen. They had no idea what it really was or why it was there. And that's why they called them sperm whales.
0: The sperm whales did not have a good public relations person in charge of their naming.
1: No, they never have had a good public relations person, except maybe for the person you're talking to <laughs> and some of the very rare scientists who have studied them.
0: They were familiar to me because I've always thought of sperm whales as scary. huh. They're the mean whale, the one that can attack boats. They're kind of like the Jaws form of a whale from the movie Jaws. That reputation of sperm whales being scary is not without some truth. Two hundred years ago, a sperm whale sank a whaling ship named the Essex. This true incident inspired Melville to write his famous novel, Moby Dick. Moby Dick is fiction. The story of the Essex is true. As you listen to Carl Safina read this true account, keep in mind the scale of what's happening. A 35-foot female whale, speared and in distress whaling rowboats in the water, the 88-foot-long Essex whaling ship, and a male sperm whale that's 85 feet. Here's Carl Safina reading a firsthand account from 200 years ago about the sinking of the Essex.
1: Owen Chase, then 23 years old, harpooned a female whose tail then smacked a leak into their boat. Stanching the leak with clothing, they returned to the ship. Back aboard the Essex, Chase saw a huge male at the surface. He blew several times and vanished. When he reappeared, the enraged whale, as well as I could judge about 85 feet in length, was coming headlong toward the 88-foot Essex. He smashed into the bow, and the ship brought up as suddenly and violently as if she had struck a rock and trembled for a few seconds like a leaf. Smashing the hull's heavy planking must have stunned the whale, for he appeared, apparently in convulsions on top of the water about 100 rods to leeward, roughly 500 yards, and I could distinctly see him smite his jaws together as if distracted with rage and fury. But like a stunned boxer on the ropes, the whale seemed to shake the blow off and suddenly remember the fight he was in. The ship was already beginning to sink when, Chase wrote, I turned around and saw him coming down apparently with twice his ordinary speed, and, and it appeared to me at the moment "'Tenfold fury and vengeance. "'The surf flew in all directions about him, "'and his course towards us was marked by white foam. "'His head was about half out of the water, "'and in that way he came upon us again and struck the ship. "'His aspect was most horrible, and such as indicated resentment. "'He came directly from the shoal which we had just before entered.' and in which we had struck three of his companions, as if he were fired with revenge for their sufferings. The first strike caused damage sufficient to doom the Essex. The second smashed in, or stove, the front of the ship below the waterline. No one had ever heard of a whale
0: sinking a ship. That's an audio excerpt from Carl Safina's book, Becoming Wild. Now, here's Carl Safina talking about the book and how ruthlessly humans have hunted the highly intelligent animal we know of as the sperm whale.
1: People have killed hundreds of thousands of sperm whales, and there were three instances where they sank the ship. Mostly, they do everything possible to just get away, they're very shy. And when people have gotten in the water with them much more recently, only within about the last 30 years or so, people have gone in the water snorkeled near them or to them. No one has ever been hurt by them. They're not remotely aggressive. In the case of the Essex, you know, that's out of hundreds of thousands. And what do they normally do? They normally try very hard to simply get away in Herman Melville's own descriptions in the descriptions of Thomas Beale a person who wrote about the natural history of sperm whale a couple of decades before Melville came out with Moby Dick they both described how people who were rowing the small dories that were used to actually throw the harpoons from they had to be incredibly quiet and sneak up on them because if the whales detected anything they just left as fast as they could so The analogy to jaws is not a good one. White sharks have attacked people. They usually attack people by mistake because they usually bite them once and then leave, realizing that they're not actually the seal they thought they were. But sperm whales have never hurt anybody unless, in a very, very few instances, they themselves were under attack.
0: And you mentioned that these sperm whales have a long history, actually, of defending their young from killer whales.
1: Well, they understand defense because they live in a dangerous ocean where there are killer whales. In fact, the entire reason that sperm whales are organized the way elephants are organized, where there's a leading older female, her sisters and daughters and their babies, is that the food of sperm whales is usually several thousand feet below the surface, these large squid that hide very, very deep in the ocean. Sperm whales are one of a very small handful of animals that can pursue them at those depths. But the baby sperm whales cannot go down deep. They have to be near the surface. And if they're alone near the surface, they are completely defenseless from orca whales or killer whales. Orcas are rare predators, but when they do show up, they're very, very dangerous to small whales. So what the sperm whales have is a family-oriented social structure. Everybody knows exactly who they are based on who they're with. They, they group identify. They know that they are members of that family and that the family is a member of a larger clan. Somebody stays with the young one when the mom is down foraging.
0: A grandmother or an aunt.
1: A grandmother or an aunt. That's who stays. So it's a babysitting culture that sperm whales have this really dictates the rest of the layered social structure that they have very very amazing thing about them is their clan structure the clans do things a certain way but there may be many thousands of whales of perhaps hundreds of families in a clan they identify themselves as members of a clan and they identify other whales based on patterns of clicks that are like short patterns of Morse code, and they're called codas, and that's how the whales identify, I'm with this clan, I'm with the such-and-such family, and I am this particular individual.
0: Here is Sound of Sperm Whales and a recording from Ocean Networks Canada.
1: And that's how the whales identify, I'm with this clan, I'm with the such and such family, and I am this particular individual. And the incredible thing about sperm whales is that they can tell whether another whale that is a total stranger, that they've never been near before, they've never met them before, whether they are in the same clan and therefore okay to socialize with, by these patterns of clicks called codas. if they're not in the same clan, they avoid members of other clans and the only other animal who can tell whether a total stranger is a member of their group is humans. We do it by language or uniform or flag or some kind of religious insignia. We have many ways to tell whether a total stranger is in a group that we belong to. But the only other animal that can do that is a sperm whale. At least that we
0: know of so far.
1: That's an important qualification, yes. At least that we know of so far, right.
0: You went out with somebody who studies them. You were someplace off of the coast of South America.
1: The island of Dominica in the Caribbean Sea. It has volcanic origin, so the slopes are very steep. There's extremely deep water right off the land. And that's why you can study these sperm whales from there because sperm whales usually inhabit water that's about 3,000 feet deep. They're not found on continental shelves usually. They're almost never seen by people. So to study them requires a, really an unbelievable amount of effort and being able to base yourself in one of the very few places where it's even possible to do it.
0: Which is the place you got to go to as part of writing this book, is to go and live on this boat for a while, This I, I should call it a ship, it was 40 feet Long.
1: It was by no means a ship. We went out every day in a long but narrow outboard boat that was crammed with gear and we came home every night. It was not an overnighting boat and not a liverboard boat. We we slept on shore. That may be the only place in the world where a shore based research team has studied sperm whales, which is why they've learned so much because it makes it feasible.
0: And in this group that you were with you got to see how they studied them by putting water microphones in the water and listening for these Morse code blips and bleeps that you describe.
1: Yeah, they have listening stations that are mapped out by GPS. So they go to one of the waypoints, they call it, and put a microphone down in the water and listen for the whales. If they don't hear them, they go about a mile and a half to the next one. They can hear them from about three miles away with that equipment, So if there are any sperm whales around, they will run into them eventually if they stop every mile and a half. You hear a lot of ship noise. You usually hear dolphins. The dolphins are squealy and whistly. And then what you're listening for is the particular clicks of the whales, like a fingernail tapping on a countertop when they're down hunting and they're just emitting this sonar looking for squid with sonar. When they stop hunting, there's silence. You can tell if they're coming up, if the clicks stop. Then when they get near the surface, they switch to those codas. Now they're using these patterns to announce themselves and to stay together with their family
0: groups. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. We're talking with Carl Sapina about his new book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. Safina's book goes into the learned cultures of wild chimpanzees, wild scarlet macaws, and sperm whales. Today, we're focusing on the whales. Sperm whales were one of the whales that was almost hunted to extinction, is my understanding.
1: Yes, and talk about brutality. Often, the whalers would harpoon a baby, knowing that its cries of distress would immediately bring larger whales right to it, and they could then kill all the other whales that came to the aid of this dying baby. The remorselessness, the total lack of empathy is one of the appalling things in the history of human brutality. But after we started to shift the entire economy away from using whale oil, mostly for lighting, and started using petroleum for lighting and heating, And for running internal combustion engines, which were brand new, you would have thought that maybe we didn't have to kill whales anymore. But what happened was that the rate of killing greatly intensified. Although we think of the sailing era and Moby Dick as the classic whaling days, far, far more whales were killed in the middle of the 20th century, with the peak being in the 1960s. We had less and less need for any kind of a whale product, but more and more clever ways to make some money off of different parts of whales, for which there were plenty of other substitutes. But, you know, humans are capable of getting completely carried away with violence.
0: The Save the Whales movement that you described that happened, what, in the 70s? Yeah. Was partly inspired by the fact that whales can make beautiful songs.
1: But it was the song of the humpback whale that when people first discovered, which was only in the late 1950s, they were listening to enemy submarines and they were hearing these very weird, long series of sounds that were very haunting and kind of beautiful. And it took a while to realize that they were listening to whales and the whales were singing. Those are humpback whales. It was those songs and how hauntingly beautiful they are that really were the game changer that that said these whales that were wiping out they're not just swimming piles of fat they're actually these sentient and sensitive beings who are sending communications back and forth
0: here's a song with paul winter and humpback whales the sperm whale has this amazing apparatus and it's huge. I don't know whether to call it a nose or a head or a brain.
1: It's the same kind of thing that dolphins have or beluga whales have. That's called a melon because it's about the size of a melon. But in, in the case of sperm whales, their sound production is so extreme that it's about a third of the whale's entire body. The visibility in the ocean is extremely limited. So when whales are together, five or 10 or 20 or 30 years that's not an accident that's extremely intentional one of the main ways that they keep together is by constantly listening for where their family members are and rendezvousing at the surface after being down sometimes several thousand feet and they live below the surface about 50 minutes out of every hour so About 80% of their lives, they're down very deep in the ocean or coming and going to those deep zones. But the families never lose track of each other. That is not an accident. That's very intentional.
0: Intentional is not the normal word we use to talk about animals.
1: We know almost nothing about animals, but animals have a lot of intentionality when they're studied or if you simply observe them carefully you see obviously they're going somewhere that they have in mind to do something that they are planning to do
0: well in your book about becoming wild what an interesting title too for such a highly cultured group of beings these sperm whales a lot of the reason that they do what they do is because they love their families and is love the wrong word when we think of the
1: kind of love that is the bonding kind of love the love that we have for our family members let's say our children our parents our spouses what does that love look like it looks like a desire to be near them without getting any reward for doing so you don't go and sit next to your child or visit your mother just because you're going to get a treat. You go because you want to be near them. And if you look at what other animals do, they have emotional bonds and they often go to the ones that they're bonded to just to be near them. In many of our own homes, in mine, we have dogs. Our dogs come up to our bedroom every night. We have pillows for them on the floor. They sleep on the floor. We have never fed them on the second floor of our home. We don't have any food up there. We don't have any treats. It's not where they eat. There's no other reason for them being there except that they want to be near us. And that desire to be near us is what we call love when it's what people are feeling and doing. So yes, other animals definitely have love and they show it in the case of dogs. We see it because dogs and cats are basically the only animals, that we get to watch living their lives. But these other animals that most people never see ever in in their lives are doing exactly the same thing. Their family members and their friends are important to them. That's who they are with in the world.
0: With the sperm whales, there's some vivid descriptions you give of how these huge whales, after they're done having a very good meal of these three foot long squid that they tend to eat the most, and after they've nursed their young, They play.
1: Whales have been doing this for millions of years, but we are surprised by it suddenly because we've never noticed it before. They are very tactile. They like a lot of physical rubbing. They like to run their fins along the bodies of the ones that are their family members or to gently mouth them with their jaws. They basically do everything that we do with each other or that we do with our dogs or our dogs like to do it. They just like to be in physical contact. They are mammals, after all. It shouldn't be surprising, but it's surprising because most of us have never heard of it or thought of it.
0: As much as you have concern about the fate of these other creatures, do you also just really love to go and hang out with them?
1: I mainly just really love to go and hang out with them. It's like the difference between living in a boring town where there's nothing to do and living in a really exciting place. To me, being in these natural environments with these other species is like living where there's plays and music and great food. It's endlessly beautiful, endlessly interesting, deeply enriching, but also fun, peaceful.
0: I found that reading about it, it took my mind off of the current plight that America and the rest of the world faces with COVID-19. It was quite an enthralling respite to step into these different worlds, including the watery world of those sperm whales.
1: Yeah, it should be because the COVID crisis is something that only affects one species, that's humans. The other animals are going about things as they always have, Another little aspect of this is that we've given them a bit of a breather here by not being out all over the place, not making so much noise, not putting so much dirt in the air and the water. One of the things people have been noticing a lot is you can hear birds singing a lot better than you used to be able to hear them two months ago. You can read about various kinds of animals coming into suburbs and cities that were places they were never seen before. There's a lot of beauty in that, in the midst of all of this anxiety and uncertainty and sickness.
0: I've heard people say that for the first time in polluted areas, they can see mountains outside their windows. People can hear the birds. Perhaps there's a way we can incorporate that side of the stillness we have right now back into our active lives. And you think that would help creatures like the sperm whales.
1: Well, it would help everything if we just let them have a breather and made a little more room and a little more kindness and a little more empathy. You know, just being kinder to other people and other living things.
0: Carl Safina is an ecologist and best-selling author. He's been talking about his new book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, create beauty and achieve peace. We have a limited number of these books available for listeners who call or pledge online to support KGNU. You can pledge online at kgnu.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music includes from the movie Jaws, Mysterious Mountain by Hovannis, and The Sounds of Whales. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303- 447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.